Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 114 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 114, we are going to talk about different types of quizzers in terms of what motivates quizzers differently? How do quizzers in their time in quizzing, we can call it their career of being a quizzer, how do they arc? Almost like a character arc, but you know, from the perspective of a quizzer, how does a quizzer's career arc differ between different types of quizzers? And what kind of advice would we give to different types of quizzers within their own sort of universe, their own sort of arc uh, through that? So... With that all said, um, Scott, uh, take it away. All right. So, yeah, I wanted to talk through the different types of quizzers, which is not going to be an exhaustive list, their potential motivations, um, their common career arcs, and what advice we would give both them and anyone around them. Um, and we are definitely going needing to pick out kind of these archetypes, but again, they are by no means exhaustive, and most people probably span... A whole bunch of them. Um, I just added a couple, but the first one is, I think it's kind of fun one. So a quizzer whose older sibling was a quizzer. So they probably know everything about the finer points of quizzing. So nothing that's unique to quizzing is new to them. Yeah, I mean, I've got a little bit of experience with this, not as a quizzer, but like both of my kids were quizzers. Actually, the younger of the two of my kids um, is still a quizzer. And so, you know, when she was very tiny, she was being brought around to quiz meets. Now, granted, my older one, when he was very, very tiny, we were bringing him around to quiz meets too. So, you know, when Xander was born, uh, he was a preemie. He was five and a half weeks uh, 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 premature. And so technically, when he was negative, like one week or something, um, he we brought him to a quiz meet. So he was like what, four and a half weeks old or something like that, four weeks old, and we brought him to a quiz meet. So he was very tiny. Um, and uh, so he, he you know, grew up, uh, at least early on, grew up in the, in the mode of quizzing. It was not, uh, you know, particularly, uh, you know, a different universe or a different culture for him. And then, of course, you know, Evie, uh, growing up, she uh, went to all the quiz, well, not all, but she went to a lot of quiz meets that Xander was participating in when he was participating in. And then a few years went by and now she's quizzing. And so it, there's not a lot about quizzing that's new to her, but I can understand somebody who didn't, who didn't experience that going to their first quiz meet. Uh, you know, like for me, uh, when I was an assistant coach going to my first quiz meet, I had deer in the headlights. I was kind of like, what is going on? Um, and so I can, I can only imagine what that would be like as a quizzer. Right. Um, do you think these qu the quizzers who kind of come in knowing all of those finer points, do you think they have a large advantage? Large? Well, inherently because of that, no. But I think practically because of it, yes. So in other words, I don't think knowing all the finer points of the rule book when you were a rookie going into your first quiz meet, I don't... I don't think it really provides you a massive advantage in and of itself, right? Because I think, like like we've talked about before, I think you can know very, very little about quizzing and you can actually go up there and participate and, and do a decent job as long as you've got verses memorized. But I think there is this sort of like, I don't know, orbiting effect of being near those rules or being near 
quizzing that allows you to walk into a quiz meet as a rookie for the first time and be more comfortable understanding what's what's going on there right so it's a, a certain level of comfortability even though it's not necessarily true i think it can work out to be true sure um now one thing i observed in multiple they weren't the only two kids in the family but i'll call them pairs of siblings were that um i saw this many times where the older sibling was very very competitive and into it and into quizzing and spent lots of time studying and was um very excellent. Let's say they were an 80 quizzer. And then the slightly younger sibling was much less into the competitive nature of quizzing, spent way less time on it, um, but was very kind of intuitive or, or natural and would score like a 75. They would, they would be a 75 quizzer spending a quarter of the time or a sixth of the time in study. Um, have you ever observed like younger siblings in a quizzing family having similar characteristics. Yeah, as long as the family is small enough. If the family is large enough, I think those effects are less pronounced. But like if you have a, a family of, say, two or three, the uh, especially if you've got a family of two, uh, and the quizzers are kind of near each other in age, maybe like a year or two, maybe three years apart, that kind of thing. Um, you might see that sort of pattern develop. And I think that's not that I think it's probably less to do about quizzing and just sort of the mental world model of, you know, kids who are in either firstborn or secondborn within that sort of construct. Um, and then we see that sort of play itself out in the practice of quizzing. But then I've also seen situations where it's been completely the opposite or reversed, right? So like my kids are great examples again of this where, you know, Xander uh, enjoyed quizzing, but was not really motivated by the competition at all. And Evie is exactly the opposite. She's very motivated uh, by the competition. Very interesting. Um, would you give any advice to, to a younger sibling in a quizzing family? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I have anything generic. I mean, it, it, it would be so much based on the individual quizzer that I'm talking to. Um, but I think, I mean, if, if there was anything generic, it would be something along the lines of like, don't live in your older siblings shadow, like, like be your own quizzer, whatever that, whatever that is, right? Like identify why you want to be doing quizzing and go for it, you know, that kind of stuff on your, on your own account, on your own accord, you know, kind of stuff. Um, don't feel like you have to adopt the same sort of approach to quizzing that your older sibling approached. I think that's a great advice. Um, so the next one is I'm labeling it this, maybe this is too flippant, but it's, but I'm labeling it. I'm just here for the food. Um, because many people participate in quizzing and care nothing about how they do competitively. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you see any common motivations among these quizzers, um, yeah. Any common motivations? Let's start right there. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the obvious common motivation is the social aspect of it. You know, it's, it's something fun to do over the course of a weekend or a Saturday or something like that. It's great to meet up with people, uh, who are roughly your same age. Um, you know, there's a lot of peers in it clustered in a very healthy, welcoming environment. So yeah, I mean, 
the social aspect of quizzing is tremendous. And I mean, we see that, you know, everywhere, like, uh, internationals is, is highly, highly competitive. And it's also simultaneously extraordinarily pro social environment, you know, in the sense of like the quizzers really enjoy hanging out with each other and developing friendships. So yeah, I mean, I, I can totally see somebody, you know, coming here purely for the social aspect of it. Now, one piece of advice I would give coaches is that it is probably not going to be very useful to try to convince these quizzers to care about how they individually do in the competition. Um, would you agree with that? I think general, I think maybe 80%. Yes. I think, I think there's, it's, it goes back to the individual quizzer, right? I, I think, I think predominantly what you're saying is true, but there's going to be exceptions all over the place. Right. Okay. Um, absolutely. There will be exceptions. But one thing that I found is that looking at your most competitive quizzers, um, which are probably going to be your internationals quizzers, um, I feel like not 100% of them would do the same amount of studying if it were purely an individual competition and not a team competition. Um, and so that factor of my efforts are helping other people on my team, I think is a powerful motivating factor. And I think that can be leveraged in greater ways than it is leveraged today to to provide some incentive to quizzers that don't care individually about the competition, um, but to demonstrate how a very small amount of effort on their parts can have a very large impact on the rest of their team. Yeah, dive into that a little bit. I mean, I, I obviously I agree with that, but like maybe dive into that a little bit more. I think if you gave a quizzer let's say five versus a meet. So that's, let's call it 20 a year, right? No, uh, 25 a year, um, r- roughly speaking. And you you told them which five, um, and you strategically picked them. So you're probably going to pick them from um, the same chapter. Maybe you don't pick key verses on purpose, and um, maybe you pick ones that have lots of reference questions or lots of unique words or are just difficult to memorize or are near the end of the material for each meet. Like pick some of those qualities, right? Um, If that quizzer gets two questions a meet, um, if they're on a halfway decent team, it it is very likely that those are third person bonuses as well. Um, It can very much change where a team ends up after prelims and it can completely turn around a quiz in the bracket. Oh, that's, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think if presented with something so manageable that they do not have to figure out themselves and also demonstrate the the outsized positive impact that it has on their teammates, um, I think that could really motivate a bunch of what we call social quizzers to memorize an amount of verses um, without trying to convince them to care about individually scoring, which they're probably not going to, right? It's just different motivations. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, it's probably true that that's probably true. Um, that's a curious way to say it. But anyway, I I think that's true, again, probably 80, 80% of the time. Um, and the the trick with for coaches is to figure out, is this particular quizzer one of the 80% or one of the 20%? Sure, right. And this isn't going to be some panacea, but I think... Whenever I coached internationals, I wanted to make the quizzers care about excellence to the same level that I did. 
And you can't just make someone care about something like that, <laughs> especially like individually. Right. Um, but to me, the biggest motivator was, do you, do the five of you want to do something together and any efforts you put in individually benefit the collective five? And to me, that was extraordinarily motivating. And that, I mean, that's also why I, all I wanted to do was win as a team in internationals when I was a quizzer, because it seemed, it seemed more difficult and more rewarding than just working hard myself in isolation. Yeah. I mean, the trick to keep in mind with a lot of this stuff is, I mean, there are some quizzers who are utterly uninterested in the competition entirely. Right. So to the point of like saying, but if you memorize these five verses, you can have a massive outsized effect on your team. And, and I, for the record, I completely agree that that's true. I think the third quizzer on a team, like if you were to stack rank your, your quizzers on a team, uh, one, you know, one, two, three, the third place quizzer on a given team has way more opportunity to actually improve the team's position within a bracket than say the first uh, position uh, quizzer, because I think the first position quizzer doesn't have that much further to go, right? They might be able to improve by 10%, maybe, um, but like the third place quizzer could improve by 50%. And what's more is is that 50% improvement has a massive uh, point differential to say the first quizzer even going uh, improving by 50%, even if that's possible, which oftentimes it's not, right? So like that third place quizzer, just by memorizing a handful of verses can actually make a, a profound effect on where a team ends up. And for some quizzers, that's actually highly motivating. So like I'll, I'll, I'll use my daughter as an example. She's highly motivated by contributing to where her team uh, uh, sits in the competition. She knows full well, like she she's on a team of three. She knows full well, like this year, I'm a rookie. It's my first year. I'm not really good at it. Well, okay, relative to the other couple people on her team, that is to say, um, she's not as quite as good as they are. And she's like, I'm not trying to be as good as they are. Um, I mean, her captain is the first place individual in the district. So obviously that would be very difficult to, to improve upon that. But she looks at it from the perspective of saying like, I can make a contribution. If I can get a couple of questions or even just one question in a quiz, I can make the difference between us getting first place and second place. And that's, that's a big deal to her. And she's highly, highly motivated to study because of that small but very profound difference that she can make to the team. Other quizzers are totally, it, it, it just doesn't matter to them at all. You know, if, if they get into brackets versus cons, if they get into, you know, championship quiz versus, you know, fourth or fifth place, it's just, it, it's just not important to them at all. They are totally there for, like you said, the food, right? They're there entirely for the social aspect of it. So the idea of like, they might even kind of prefer going into consolations because it's a little bit more relaxed and, you know, they can have a little bit more fun. Um, they actually might be demotivated to uh, perform well as a result of that. Interesting. Um, but I think you'd agree that your daughter might be both aware of, of her potential impact and motivated. There are going to be some quizzers who would be motivated, but are not aware. That's very true. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. And I think coaches can do a, are profoundly valuable in that regard to encourage their third position quizzers to become aware of, of the, the, 
value that they could contribute to the team. But I don't, I don't think we should let ourselves fall into the trap of saying, oh, but all we have to do is make sure that all these third position quizzers know how profoundly valuable they could be. And that will motivate them. I think there's a, a very good chunk of quizzers who are there for the food, like, like what you're talking about. And, and they're not going to be motivated, um, for in, in that regard for the competition, they might be motivated for other reasons. Like, uh, the idea of like qualifying for great West is, uh, you know, if you're a social quizzer, Great West is just about the most social thing that you'll ever do. It's more social than, than internationals. It's more social than district championships. It's more social than like any other part of, of the quizzing season. And so, you know, if you happen to be like in position 30 or 32 or something like that, and you're, you you happen to be highly motivated by the social aspect of it. Great West can be a huge motivator to the opportunity, that is to say, of taking up through, say, position 25. That could be a huge motivator to say, like, yeah, I want to memorize some verses. I don't I don't care where my team gets. I don't even I don't care where my individual score gets as long as I get to go on the road trip. Right. Or I get to participate um, in the social activities you know, in Canada, like that, I, that's, that's something that would be highly motivating to somebody. So I think we could, you know, looking at that, we could say, well, are there other things that we can do in quizzing either at the church level or even at the district level to say like, well, can we, I, I, I this is just a terrible idea, but it's, it's the first thing I can think of. Like, are there social experiences that we can limit to people uh, based on, uh, you know, qualifying via some sort of improvement in their individual average or something like that? I, I have no idea how to make that actually work and be fun and fair and good uh, for the program. But there are definitely people who that that is that's what they're that's their juice. That's why they're here. That's really interesting because my next question is perhaps too abstract to be usefully answered by you, but it was, should we spend more time than we do currently or less time or the same um, planning and structuring the competitive part of quizzing with the knowledge that there is a percentage of quizzers that don't care about it and will never care about it? Describe your question a little bit more. I'm not sure I fully understand what you're asking. Like... I always think about how quizzing is nice because it, it filters quizzers into tiers, um, admittedly on results, but we use that as a proxy for interest in the competition side of it. Um, and it allows for these kind of stretch goals for people that would have additional interest, but it doesn't force those that don't to also um, go along, right? right. So like – could it be that even six prelims plus brackets for an amount of qu and constellation brackets for an amount of quizzers that don't care about any of it is somehow is partially demotivating to their overall experience? I think that's absolutely true, right? I've actually contemplated the idea of doing away with constellations in P and W. I, I think constellations are more on on balance more valuable to have than not to have, but I have considered the calculation around what would happen uh, in terms of motivation if we got rid of consolations and replaced it with just fun quizzer activity time, you know, kind of stuff. Um, more free time for quizzers who have quizzed out, or not quizzed out, but have basically like been eliminated in the competition to be able to 
play games together and that kind of stuff. Um, and I think on balance right now, based on a scientific study I just made up in my head, I think it's better to have consolation quizzes, but I can see the argument to say, well, if people are supremely motivated by the social, maybe we need to actually have more opportunities for them to be social at the quiz meet. Right. Because when I quizzed, which is now quite a long time ago, um, because the district was bigger and we held a single quiz meet over the same day and a half, we only had three prelims instead of six. And so we were quizzing five to six times a meet, not um, seven to nine, eight to nine, eight to nine. Yeah. Um, and because of that, there was way more downtime and people playing risk and basketball and just hanging out. Um, and I think it's an interesting question of can we find what is the optimal balance between the two if if those two are um, suboptimal extremes? Yeah. And I mean, I'll say, you know, personally, when I was organizing meets, uh, you know, pre-COVID, like what was it, three years ago? I would, I would lean toward what, what are the maximum, what's the maximum amount of quizzing that I can shove into the time available, you know, kind of thing. Um, I was always wanting to try to find, you know, we're here to quiz, quizzers are motivated by quizzing, let's have the most amount of quizzing that we can possibly have for as many quizzers as possible. And I think that's kind of a mistake. I think that's definitely motivating for a lot of quizzers. But I think it can be, it can, be, it can definitely wear down quizzers over time. But I, but I also think it's actually anti-motivating for other quizzers who are there. They don't have as much time to fellowship and play and and hang out and that kind of stuff. Especially since we don't, we're not at least right now doing the overnight stuff uh, at the moment. So there's even less time uh, to be able to hang out and fellowship and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe it's appropriate to consider. I mean, like right now we organize uh, meets around having six prelims. Maybe it's better to consider throttling back and doing three prelims um, and having or or having, you know, maybe going back to three prelim quizzes and having more breaks. I mean, it's it's hard to say because you get into a situation where like if you happen to be ninth, tenth, eleventh, somewhere in that ballpark of 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 positions you really want to have your opportunity of having six prelims versus three, because then it's like, well, you know, three prelims, if you have one bad quiz, that can really hurt your chances of, of getting into brackets potentially. Whereas if you've got six, then it's like, well, you can usually recover uh, from, you know, if you have one bad quiz, it's usually not the end of the world. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of give and take in the calculus there. Right. It, it reminds me of when I was um, a, a rookie no, I was in my second year. My brother was a rookie. And in one meet, one of our three prelims, we just had a bad prelim. And we finished 19th. And this was when the top 18 made the kind of finals bracket. Uh -huh. um, and then we proceeded in consolations to score 1,000 points in, in three <laughs> quizzes. And it just shows that the variance based on three prelims is going to be very large. And we probably were one of the best 18 teams. Um, but just because of how things fell, we didn't make it. And that is something that just comes along with having fewer prelims. Yeah. Um, I, oh, it. this is reminding me of the fact that there is this constant kind of opposing forces of individual quizzing versus team quizzing at the district level. Because you want to win as a team, but individuals are trying to qualify for meets like Great Western Internationals. And coaches are trying to put together teams 
that ideally are strong enough to get their quizzer into finals where their scores count 100%, but not not a super team where it's hard to score. And to me, there's a lot of weird incentives that I kind of wish didn't exist. Because um, another another part of it was money, where um, you were charged per team. And so some churches wouldn't want to put together a two-person team of their two strong quizzers. They would make it a four-person team with two just kind of throw-ins, which ended up being a really poor competitive experience for those two quizzers. <laughs> and I think there are, are levers that we could pull to not have those opposing incentives of individual and team, but also hit some of the other incentives we were talking about by adding in a little more social time. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right. So another type of quizzer is one that has tremendous material knowledge, but is extremely cautious um, to the point of perhaps never airing in a meet, but still averaging a 40 hmm. or, or averaging a 90 in the district or close to it and then winning zero jumps in rationals. Yeah. Well, obviously <laughs> right, there's, and there's been more than one of these uh, over the years. Um, I, I find that this is not that uncommon, right? Quizzers that um, have strong material knowledge, but either um, don't have the confidence to jump n- like never on recognition or, haven't specialized in a type enough to be really confident in that or, or, you know, don't have a um, strong strategy going into a quiz. Um, But I don't know. Do you have any advice in general about these types of quizzers or thoughts on their career arcs? I mean, it's hyper dependent on the individual again. I know I keep saying that over and over again, but like I, I'm remembering a couple of people two in particular um, one, some 20 years ago? Eek. 15 years ago? I forget. Maybe it was 15 no, years ago. It, it's 20, Griffin. Oh. See, you know the person I'm talking about, too. Um, <laughs> um, wow, has it been 20 years? Oy vey, we're old. Um, anyway, yeah. So, like, I, I'm remembering a particular quizzer about 20 years ago who was... Uh, I believe this quizzer was first place in the district. If not first place, this quizzer was, like maybe second place individually in the district. I think the quizzer was first place in the district. Am I correct? They definitely placed first at some point in the district at some point in their career. Yeah. Um, I can't recall if that was while I was still quizzing or not, but at least once, if not more than once. Yeah. I think this person was, was going into uh, internationals. I think this person was placed in first place uh, as an individual in the district. Like I, I, I that's my vague memory. Um, where this person was, uh, but this person would not increase their jumping speed. Like it just, it was not going to happen. They, they had, they had dialed in a jumping speed at the district level where this person could reliably get nineties, almost every quiz, right? Like, like this person had just dialed it in and it was, and it was absolutely working. And we would went into practice international internationals practice. And I could not get this quizzer to jump faster. It just, I, it wasn't like, like I was searching for the dial and it, it, there was no dial. Like the quizzer would not go faster. And so as a result, the quizzer would very rarely ever get a question correct. And it, what it what ended up happening is we went to internationals and I believe the quizzer like maybe got one question or two questions, the entire meet. Um, it was, it was, it was amazing. Um, in a, in a not great way, you know, kind of thing. 
and I, I could never quite tell why um, it was the case. It may have just been like the quizzer was comfortable at the speed that the quizzer was comfortable at, and that was it, right? It could also be something, and it's it's harder, you know, mind read, but like I can mind read my daughter better than I can mind read somebody that I'm remembering 20 years ago. But like my daughter, Evie doesn't want to err. And I've had many conversations with her. She hasn't aired yet. Um, and uh, well, I mean, she hasn't aired in um, at, a, at a meet. She's aired in a practice, but she has not aired in a meet. But I think she's only aired at, at practice, even like maybe once or twice or something. It hasn't been very often. Um, and so she like she really does not want to air at a meet. And I keep telling her, like, that means you're jumping too slow, like. You, you need to go faster. Now, I would not provide that same advice to everybody, right? There are quizzers who are jumping too quickly at, at a district meet and don't know the answer and are flubbing around trying to find the answer and are just guessing. And that's not good. It's, it's not good for the quizzer. It's not good for the quiz meet, all that kind of stuff. So I, I would definitely not advise everyone to, you know, go faster. But the idea being that, like... If you're going to a quiz meet and you're and you've never aired that is, and and you are still getting questions, right? Um, you're getting questions correct, but you've never aired. That's a sure sign to me that you need to dial up the speed. But I can't get my daughter to jump faster because she's got this thing where she's like, I don't want to err because I if I err, I will be letting down my team. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you you need to go faster because you could actually get a higher score on balance and that would benefit your team but like she she's got this you know kind of mental blocks not the right word but she's got this thing where she just has to work through it and and come out the other side and and go faster but yeah like how would you how would you talk to different quizzers i think i think the biggest thing is try to identify what's the motivation uh that the quizzer what are the motivations because it's probably a complex tapestry of motivations for the quizzer like what's holding them back what's causing them to slow down their jumping or be too tentative is it a fear of getting an error is it a no i'm just really comfortable at a particular speed and i just don't want to change is it strategic um like it could just be the quizzer is, is saying like I believe that I can have a 95% accuracy rate if I jump on three syllables. And you're like, okay, maybe you're absolutely right about that calculation, but I would rather you have an 80% accuracy because your your total net average will be higher, you know, that kind of thing. Or the number of points that you earn is going to be higher as a result of that, right? So I don't know, it's it's um, it, it, investigate via conversation, what what are the motivations? And what are the what's the thinking process of each individual quizzer, treat them as individuals and, and then figure out like, what's going to cause them to improve. Right. I mean, I observed a quizzer once that I did not coach who was averaging about a, um, they would, they would average it close to a 90 through prelims in districts and then would get almost nothing in um, final nine bracket and end up with about a 40, 40 to 50 average. And um, it was just really interesting because they, they definitely knew the material completely strongly. Um, but because you do see quizzers that score high in prelims, but are just below the cut of what is able to consistently win a jump in final nine. And that always makes perfect sense to me. You just don't know the material, the whole material well enough, you know, it well enough to get a 60 in prelims. Right. Um, but I can see why you're now getting a zero in final nine, but this quizzer was like 
quizzing out and not quizzing out slowly, like quizzing out quickly and then not getting stuff in final nine. And um, I, again, I didn't coach them, so I don't know what changed, but at a certain point things changed and they made internationals multiple times. And I think that's one of, that's a big reason why this is one of my most fun groups of quizzers to coach is because um, potentially um, that massive jump is right around the corner. Like it could be, you know, 10 minutes of work and they are at that next level. It happened with a quizzer at internationals once who excellent in the district, obviously made internationals. Um, and then one year to internationals scored a zero. And then the next year scored like a 30 or something, you know? Right. And um, it is just, it is fun to see that change. And one thing, especially for internationals, maybe this may not be as useful in the district, but that I found useful is you teach how to jump at different syllable speeds and you never call certain speeds either fast or slow. And you don't get the person thinking that, oh, I have to jump fast. Like it's this binary or sometimes you might associate fast with risky. Right. Uh, um, but I would just say like, you need to jump at four syllables. And then it's just like, a task that I have to execute, like sweeping the floor. And it's like, well, I can do that. Um, and then obviously you have to assess their material knowledge. And do I think they are going to get more than 10% correct to jumping at four syllables? Um, but if you know that they will, and then they jump at four syllables and do, um, then it just kind of snowballs in a good way. So I found that really useful to just never say, oh, you should jump faster. You're jumping too slow. Or, you know, any of those sorts of language. Right. Indeed. So now we're going to go to the flip side, which is a quizzer who has not great or poor material knowledge, but really throws caution to the wind. And most quizzes are either a quiz out or an air out. Um, do you have thoughts on these quiz the types of motivations that drive these quizzers, any advice that you'd give them, and some career arcs that you see? Yeah, I... I know there's, there's a handful of quizzers who fall into this. Um, the quizzer that has good material knowledge, but throws caution to the wind. I think that's a coaching opportunity. Um, because I mean, clearly, you know, a quizzer has good material knowledge. You can tell the quizzer has good material knowledge, but they're just, they don't have jump discipline. They're not focused on getting the, the proper amount of syllables out, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and as a result, you know, sometimes they can quiz out and sometimes they can air out. And when they air out, maybe they have a, a three good questions uh, answered and then they air out. Right. So it's it's you know, it's 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 all over the map, you know, kind of stuff. So, you know, in those sort of situations, um, I mean, I've never personally coached somebody like that. So it's hard for me to say what's going to work or what's not going to work. So, again, I, I maybe kind of go back to talk to this quizzer. I think the biggest thing is just point it out, like say like, Hey, I, I noticed this is a pattern. Tell me what's going on here. And do you want to see that improve? And if so, then, then what can we do to, to, what can we work on so that you can be better at this, you know, kind of stuff. But I think the one, I think the ones that frustrate me more are the quizzers that have poor material knowledge. They know they have poor material knowledge and they still throw caution to the wind and they feel like, they feel compelled to air twice in a quiz, right? The like once they get two errors, then they'll just sit and they and they won't take risks anymore. But like they will every quiz they will go too fast, get a jump, and ha clearly not have strong enough material memorization at that point. 
I'm not sure what motivates a quizzer to do that. Um, so, I mean, and again, I've never coached somebody who did that because I mean, I think if that were to happen to a quizzer that I was coaching, I, I would again, want to point it out to the quizzer and say like, Hey, I'm noticing this is a pattern. Can, can you help me understand what your motivations are? Like, like, why are you, why are you doing that? Like, it could just be like, they might, it, it's possible. They might not even be aware that they're doing it. They, they might look at it and say, well, yeah, I don't have really good material memorization right now, but I still want to participate. I want to do something. I want to take the risk. And, you know, if I get one incorrect, it's not, doesn't hurt the team. And, you know, as a coach, maybe you can, you can make that evaluation and say like, yeah, okay don't air twice, but if you want to air once, um, go for it, you know, give, give it a try, um, and, and use that as a stepping stone to get better. But when I, when I'm seeing this sort of habitual behavior happening and it's always usually the same, you know, three or four quizzers, right. Um, I keep wondering, like, is your coach not noticing this? Um, and, and what's going on that I'm not aware of. And I, I honestly, I honestly have no idea how I would coach that individual, but I would definitely have a conversation with them and just say like, Hey, um, I'm noticing this, what's going on. How do we, how do we make some improvements? Are you interested in improving? Right. Um, maybe they're not, maybe they're like, you know, I just, I enjoy getting up and it doesn't matter if I get it right or wrong. And I'm just motivated to enjoy the process. And you're like, okay, well maybe that's okay. Right. Um, I don't know. I've probably coached this kind of quizzer, but I think I observe a decent amount of attention-seeking behavior, mm, yeah. um, which is tough to say, do things that get less attention. Um, but I think one thing to impress is the quizzers that air a whole lot, um, there are penalties to airing that are less obvious. Um, the main one being your team doesn't get to jump for the whole next question. Um and beyond the fact that they didn't get this question and there might be a point deduction. I think most people look at the point deduction and they don't, they don't look at the fact that if you're airing on question one, it means you don't get question one, but it also means you have no chance to get question two. Um, and I think that that is something you de-emphasize when a quizzer is getting to write a quiz and never airing, but it is something that you emphasize more when a quizzer goes one and two, two and two, two and three, most quizzes. Um, which is kind of this sort of quizzer. Um, so I think that would be one thing to emphasize. But again, I think this is kind of a tough one because this is the type of quizzer that I see fewer drastic turnarounds in scoring the way that you would on a quizzer who um, doesn't jump a ton but and never airs. Um, because just by tweaking a few things, they jump more, win a lot more jumps, and score a lot more. But another thing about this type of quizzer, um, it's not really this type of quizzer, but if hypothetically, based on your material knowledge, there is an optimal speed that you should jump, right? Like if I know almost nothing, I should probably be jumping close to when the whole material, the, the whole question is read, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, I'm going to get zero right ever. Um, but if I know the material phenomenally, well, if I jump it three syllables or uh, yeah, say three syllables, I might be able to win most of the jumps and still be able to get a lot of them right just because of how well I know the material. Well, if you cut to internationals, um, those calculations have a lot less use because if, this, if you know the material poor enough that the speed at which you should jump means that you will win zero jumps internationals, you're not going to take that strategy. 
you're going to take the strategy of jumping at roughly the same speed as everybody else, and I'm just going to get what whatever accuracy I get. And right. so you, you see this. Like, the teams that are the worst to material knowledge know this fact intimately, and they are going to win six to eight jumps a quiz at 20% accuracy. And that's why they're going to score poorly. They're not going to score poorly because they win two jumps a quiz and get one out of two. Um, and that's not lack of coaching. That's actually the correct coaching for that situation. But it's it's very frustrating to be the opponent because you know that your opponent is doing something that over the course of 12 prelims will result in them scoring in the bottom five. But if in the quiz that they face you, they happen to get some things that they know, then you could lose. Or um, even if you win, they could take up tons of questions that you don't score well. And that's that's a frustrating thing. And I'm not sure if there's any way within the structure to change that. Um, I think that's definitely why I've had ideas of if a quizzer has won at least 10 jumps internationals and their overall accuracy dips below 25%, they're eliminated from the meet, right? Mm. Something that is extremely penal, but only occurs when there's been a tremendous amount of errors made, right? Right. Because um, that would be, you have to win at least 10 jumps and you, you if you've gotten three right, then you're still fine. Um, so yeah, I think that's that one. Has any of this um, conversation jogged a different type that you think would be interesting to talk about. Mm, I'm sure there are many, but I mean, it's kind of thing. What we're doing here is we're, we're looking at all quizzers who are individuals and we're chunking them into buckets. Right. And so there's always going to be an infinite number of buckets that we can talk about because every quizzer is unique in various different ways. And so it's kind of like where, what, what, whatever bucket that we, we, yeah, I mean, there's infinite ways to chunk the population into a series of buckets. And I think I think that's the important thing. I, I, I think it's useful to talk about these buckets and useful to explore common things within one bucket versus another. But I think it's really, really important at the end of the day, always to remember that a quizzer is not just one quizzer in a bucket. They are unique. They're an individual. They've got a... a a huge amount of uniqueness to them that is not simply they're not just categorized they're not simply categorizable if that makes any sense right yeah i think it is it is useful to both observe patterns that you can kind of pattern match in in small ways while not losing that individuality right right because it could be i think we talked about four types um do we talk about four one two, yeah i think four it could be that you know of a quizzer who is bits of all four of that. That's actually probably very likely. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and um, you can use learning about all those four types in the ways that would be most suited to this quizzer. Yeah. Do we want to call it or do we want to... Do you have one more? I don't have another type, no. Yeah. Um, why don't we call it? Um, any other last thoughts? I don't think so. Yeah, me either. I mean, I just want to reiterate the 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 idea of like treat quizzers as individuals. I, I mean, it's there's there's a lot that goes on inside a quizzer's head that is unique to that quizzer that that as a coach we will never see, um, and a lot of what happens inside the quizzer's head presents itself in different ways as the quizzer is in competition. And so I think it's just always useful to keep that in mind as we're working with quizzers is to not treat them 
as all the same, but treat them as individuals. Um, encourage, motivate, correct. Sometimes when it's appropriate, you do need to rebuke uh, some, some bad behavior. Uh, and then as we spur each other on to love and good deeds, as they say. So on that bombshell, I will say uh, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, I do want to remind everybody that if there is anything that Scott or I have said that you disagree with, we really want to hear from you. Actually, we really want to hear from you regardless. Um, but we especially like it when people disagree with us uh, because it helped us learn more. Uh, so you can email us at iq at cbqz.org, iq at cbqz.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter account handle is at Inside Quizzing. And if you are on the Slack uh, forum, the Bible Quizzing uh, Slack forum that you can get to from pnwquizzing.org, you can chat with us in kind of almost near real time on the Inside Dash Quizzing uh, channel. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thank you, everyone. And thanks, Griffin. 